Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne and George Edelman. Charles Hayne writes tech, George Edelman is the editor-in-chief, and we are here with the No Film School podcast for this week in North America. It is best known as the week of Canada Day and Independence Day, so it is independent and Canada-themed for this week. It's actually not. We have no stories related to either. But uh, <laughs> this is the week of the first week of July 2019 for the No Film School podcast. Coming up on this episode, we've got more crazy deep fakes. How one person started out with nothing and got her film on Netflix. We've got some stuff about Johnny Ive leaving Apple. We've got all that, tech news, and an Ask No Film School all this week on the No Film School podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Shotlister, the only professional shot listing and scheduling app. Go to www.shotlister.com to learn more. All right. So, our first story this week is actually another deepfake story. Before we get into the specific deepfake story, let's talk about deepfakes a little bit. So, deepfakes are a new technology that uses home-cooked machine learning. And machine learning is when you teach a machine to learn. So, it's not just I teach the machine something. I teach the machine to learn new things. So, it is computer software you can install on your own home computer. As far as I can tell, it's PC only at this point, where you teach your machine to learn. And what you teach your machine to learn, in a lot of cases, is you can teach your machine to learn a specific person's face. So the famous example that went around filmmaking six months or a year ago was, you know, Henry Cavill, when he was shooting the pickups for Superman Returns, had a mustache that he had for uh, the other movie he was doing, Spy vs. Spy or Man from U.N.C.L.E. or whatever. And contractually, he couldn't shave his mustache, so they had to digitally paint the mustache out from all the pickups, and everybody could sort of tell they'd painted the mustache out. So this guy built a $500 deepfakes computer. He inserted all of the photos on the internet of Henry Cavill's face. The machine learned what Henry Cavill looks like, and it was able to erase his mustache because there was some, like, available behind-the-scenes footage of him in the Superman outfit with a mustache to show before and after stuff, sort of BTS footage. And this little $500 machine did better than hundreds of thousands of dollars at VFX at erasing Henry Cavill's mustache because deepfakes are getting good. What's interesting- Here's what I oh, go ahead. What I would have loved, I'll just say real quick, what I would have loved with that, and if somebody wants to do this out there, please do it because it'll go viral. Can you just, can someone deepfake Superman in every movie with a mustache? Like, why not? Oh my God. Yeah, that would be so entertaining. So the interesting thing about deepfakes in the rest of the world is deepfakes are now actually, there's a real terror of deepfakes being used for fraudulent activity, making Obama give a speech supporting the New York Yankees, for instance, because we all know he's a Chicago uh, Cubs fan. That kind of thing where we're getting... <laughs> that's, the scariest, that's the scariest possible thing that could be done. <laughs> um, and so now all these other researchers are building all these tools to try and analyze the things that deepfakes tend to miss. So the current thing everyone is obsessed with in deepfakes research is blinking, is that everyone has a blinking pattern to how they blink, and deepfake algorithms aren't very good at faking that. So now the people who are anti-deepfake are using blinking tracking to try and identify blinking in micro expressions that show up on real human faces and don't show up on deep fake faces that help us identify what is actually a deep fake or what is not, which would be very helpful in the story that we were dealing with this week where apparently deep fakes are continuing. And you want to kick us off, George? 
Yeah, so what happened here, uh, and this is a post we have up on No Film School that a contributor of ours, Jordan Aldridge, actually posted on his um, Ultimate Action Movie Club page on Facebook. And I saw it because I followed Jordan's page and I was just immediately amazed at the, the fact that this is so cool, but also it's a great No Film School story because it involves filmmaking. So uh, like many stories in Hollywood, there's a like a near-miss casting where Stallone was almost the Terminator. Um, this is like, you know, Tom Selleck, speaking of mustaches, was almost Indiana Jones. There's, there's Chris tons Walken of these, was but, almost Han Solo. Exactly, yes, or who knows what. Yeah, there's a lot of fun ones, and this just opens the door to all of them, to be quite honest. But the fun thing about this is that someone deep-faked Stallone into the Terminator movies just to kind of show us what it would have been like. And what I've, you know, first, firstly, what I was really taken with was that it kind of looks like uh, Stallone, like, I think the way deepfake technology works Maybe is it it's it there's a little bit of a combining of their faces, like head and face sort of merge in this this finished product of what he looks like. Um the Stallone Terminator, the Stallone Arnold Schwarzenegger crossover is is an extremely handsome man, I just gotta say. Like I'm these, not surprised. Somehow, somehow when you put them both together, they kind of like complement each other's like you're used to have both of them look but the 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 finished version makes me wonder not just about like you know obama rooting for the yankees which is terrifying but things like um can we make a, a more perfect movie star out of this can we take a couple people maybe and merge them into one can we take a few people from the past and, and not just i mean i you know one of the things you start thinking about was do you remember when so they had Fred Astaire selling vacuum cleaners. Was and Marlon Brando ones. was in some ad because of the scans they did. Yeah. I mean, it's yes. it's terrifying and to think old... about public domain celebrities being used in inappropriate ways. And when you go back and look at those old ones where people, I think John Wayne sold beer once. You look at those now and you think, oh, boy, what was anyone afraid of? That just looks so rudimentary. And like, yeah. and not like, But, you know, we're looking at these things now and they're just... I like I, I mean seamless. If you haven't seen the one uh someone did where Steve Buscemi's face was put on Jennifer Lawrence's body when she's accepting an award, it's just chilling and bizarre and seamless. Uh it went like quasi viral, whatever that means anymore. The interesting thing also to think about for filmmakers is, like, there's a real opportunity. Obviously, you're not going to be able to go out and raise money for a $5 million deepfake movie because there's all sorts of rights issues involved and stuff. But you, if you are, like, truly at the, like, Karen Carpenter superstar phase of your career where you're like, I'm just going to go out and make shit, rights be damned, let's go crazy, you could go out with a bunch of your friends, shoot the footage that you want to tell the story you want, and then recast your movie in post with whoever you like for all of the roles and put together this like sort of fascinating pastiche of a movie building movie stars from scratch on your $500 PC in post. And I think we are about to see some very interesting, you know, I don't think we'll see these in festivals because I think it's too legally risky for festivals and they won't get distributed. But in YouTube and Vimeo and other online sharing, I think we're going to start to see a very interesting evolution of, you know, the phase we're in with remix culture where we get to see a movie of what it would really look like if Steve Buscemi had Jennifer Lawrence's mm -hmm. body and it was an entire <laughs> narrative built around that person 
I love that. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I love that just that. as a person. You know what it reminds me of when you said remix culture? I thought about how I'm sure at some point people were scared at the idea of a DJ being an artist unto themselves, but yeah. that kind of became a thing. And oh yeah, that's a cool. That's a cool thing. Like it doesn't take away from recording artists who record original, write and record original music or perform original music or the interest in that. It's just like what is what is this? But a, a movie star DJ, like with a remix on a performance or like I mean I totally watch Raiders of the Lost Ark with Tom Selleck just out of fascination. It's also this argument I make all the time to my students, which is, you know, I watched among my photographer friends, and obviously this doesn't apply to top-end people. This isn't an Annie Leibovitz anecdote. But, like, of the people I know in (laughs) photography, in the 90s, I knew a lot of photographers who were like, oh, I don't do my own retouching. I have a retoucher. You work with them. By about 2005, everyone I knew who was making money in photography did all their own retouching. At this point, I know many DPs who don't do their own color grading. I know... At least half of my DP buddies do all of their own color grading because it is a skill you need to have to be an effective DP now in order to really, like, take advantage of all the things. You want to be able to do that cool music video that doesn't have a budget to hire Bob Carreri, so you want to be able to color it yourself and then go to Bob Carreri on the bigger jobs. So it's a skill that a lot of DPs need to have that DPs didn't need to have 20 years ago. I'm sitting here having this conversation, and I'm like, as a filmmaker, does deepfake need to be in my pocket? Like, is it something yeah, where, like, should we do a tutorial series this fall on the Filmmaker's Guide to Deepfake? And, uh, and I build a PC machine and we, we try some of this stuff and we learn how to effectively do it so that is this a skill that filmmakers should have? So, yeah, let us know on Twitter or comments for this article or whatnot. Is this something filmmaker fans of the No Film School podcast, you guys want to know how to do deepfakey stuff? Because if so, we will dig in and we will figure it out and I will devote some time this fall to it. Because I'm sitting here thinking – holy shit, is this now a skill that, like, the way every DP sort of needs to know color, every filmmaker needs to have a little bit of, like, at least enough to know how to be dangerous with deepfakes? I vote yes, because I want you to learn so you can show us so I can learn so I can start doing stuff like putting Steve Buscemi's face on Jennifer Lawrence's oh, no. body. Well, no, but, mean, and this is the on. perfect wrap-up. <laughs> we have to go in and add a mustache to all of the other Superman footage we can. So Nick Cage Superman has to get a mustache. George Reeves has to oh, get a mustache. we got to go back. Wow. And that yes. is the perfect wrap-up to that story on deepfakes. All right, our next story this week, it's a little bit of a tech story, but it's actually not a tech story. It's a business drama story, so it's up in the headlines. Johnny Ive has left Apple. Now, there are like a billion takes on this. There's like a whole Wall Street Journal undercover article that like Tim Cook and Steve Jobs hate each other and they were like burning with jealousy and like throwing fireballs at each other and and Tim Cook wouldn't even come and look at the products before they launched and you could see at the demo days that he hadn't even seen the product and all of this crazy bullshit. I don't know if any of that is true. I've never met either of them. Who knows? But I will say this. One thing that I think is being missed in this story is that 25 years is a long time. 27 years is an almost insanely long time for anyone to work at one company. And he is leaving, I think at least partially because he wants other clients. He's leaving to start a design company with his friend Mark Newsom called Love From. Apple will be one of their main clients. And in the film industry, this is really common. When I owned a post house, one of our best editors at one point was like, hey, I'm on salary and I'd like to go freelance. I want other clients. He still did like half of his work through us. He was still in the office a whole bunch. We still worked with him. But he was like, I want the freedom of freelance. Basically, Johnny Ive is like, I would like to do work for other people. And he's now going to be freelance. I think he's actually done a little work for other people in the last couple of years already. But my suspicion is that all of the internet like theories 
are blown a little out of proportion. Did he have a great relationship with T- uh, Steve Jobs? Totally. Is it probably a little less good with Tim Cook? Maybe. Maybe not. Is this just, after 27 years, a very natural thing for a creative person to be like, I want to work with a variety of clients on a variety of things? I think that's, like, totally super normal. And I think that, like, this is one of those cases where there's, like, people are out there looking for a drama behind it that, like, actually within the normal creative arts, it's super weird to be this exclusive for this long. Now, I have a pers- yeah. I have some hopes about what this means, but go ahead. This this man is probably at a point where he feels like, you know, if you're reading between the lines on a lot of the rumors and the quotes that, that maybe Tim Cook is also refuting, that he was tired of them changing their focus and not into breakthrough, et cetera. I just feel like maybe at a certain point you're like, hey, I've done it all here. And he certainly has with Apple. Like, what mountain does he have left to climb oh as my a God. designer there? Uh, it just makes sense. Even if it's not a indictment of what Apple is doing, it may just be simply that he's ready to do something different. No, and I think that's absolutely like something all creative artists should respect in other creative artists. The biggest hope I have for this is we got a new Mac Pro that legitimately answered all of the things we are asking for. And I'm hoping there are all sorts of rumors about a 2019 September 16-inch MacBook Pro that is like really pro-targeted. And I'm just hoping it gets rid of the touch bar and gives me function keys and gives me an SD card slot. Because literally, Apple, you cannot argue with an SD card slot. It's so skinny (laughs) and it's so useful. I get why you dropped HDMI. I get why you dropped USB. I understand. I almost forgive. But give me an SD card slot and a MagSafe port and I will be totally. So I'm hoping, I don't know if Johnny Ive was a fan of the touch bar. I have no idea. I've not been in those meetings. But I'm secretly hoping the touch bar was his pet and the 2016 inch will have no more touch bar. (laughs) This is my little dream in this whole scenario. That's the Charles Hayne best possible outcome of this. Well, this is is the touch touch bar goes away. (laughs) Yeah, you got to have you got to have dreams, right? I do find every time I'm like, oh, so that's gone now. Okay. So now I have to figure out that workaround. Okay. But that's the new thing. So now my old stuff has to plug into that. So I just kind of always roll with it because that's because I don't feel like I have much choice. Um, But yeah, I can, the SD card thing just does seem like, why not? It's so thin. It's such a tiny little thing. And when I got my 2018 MacBook Pro, I bought like four SD card readers. There's one at home and one at the office and one in my book bag and one in my car. And yet I still semi-regularly find myself annoyingly not being able to find one when I need one. And then I'm in Maine for two weeks teaching at Maine Media Workshops and I only brought my 2013 MacBook Pro. And it has an SD card slot. And like I will download this podcast into it with that in right after the show is done. So SD card slot, that is the thing we are asking for. All right, and then up next, our final headline of the week. Actually, this one's yours, George. So this is up on the, on nofilmschool.com. The title of it was, I started this film with $0 and it ended up on Netflix. And the movie was called Paris is Us. And so this is one of these things where the, the filmmaker who's in France, she contacted me through uh, the editor at nofilmschool.com email address And she told me the story of how she made this little movie years and years ago. And she'd been working on it forever, Labor of Love. It's experimental. Uh, You can read the story. There's a lot of cool stuff in, in really where it came from and how hard she had to fight to keep it going. And it ended up on Netflix. And she spent 
pretty much nothing uh, until she got to the point where she had to finish and post, et cetera, et cetera. So it's one of those stories. But what I like about it, not just that it's a testament to like get a camera, get an idea and make a movie and people may see it. It's just, that's amazing. That's the world we live in right now. What I like about it is that she really came after me because at first, you know, this first time she, we get a lot of those kinds of emails. Um, and she was very persistent in that she kept saying, hey, you know, I want to circle back, see if you're still like available. And I would always say, yeah, yeah, it's a great story. And, you know, I'll, I'll take a look at it soon. And, I, you know, French is her first language. So it took a little while from the editing standpoint and working with her. But for all of our listeners and all of our readers, uh, if you have a cool story about how you pulled something off, how if, be it a shot, a feature, whatever, and actually got some eyes on it, actually broke through in some capacity. Because look, I don't know, we don't know about all of these types of projects. I didn't know Paris Is Us existed because I'm not constantly scanning everything on Netflix or every streaming service. And I didn't know that it was made for initially for zero dollars. So, you know, that or euros. One correction we have to post is that we said in the comments, of course, our commenters caught this because our commenters are are on the ball. We said in the post that she shot on the um, Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 4K. She did not. She just shot it on the original, not the 4K, because the 4K came out after she shot. And what's amazing about our readers is that someone caught that the timeline was wrong, pointed it out, and someone else said, you know what, I think they probably meant the original which we did. I have to say, I'm just going to call you out on this, George. I cannot believe you are asking people to be more persistent about getting stories up. That is like <laughs> like a very generous thing you are saying because I, I'm, I'm just going to say, hey, tech people, I heard you the first time. It is rare <laughs> the second email is like any – it's like I look at it and I'm like, that's a tech story or that's not a tech story because I almost exclusively write about tech. You know, it, it, the other reason I brought it up is because it really ties into her whole approach. As you read her story about making this movie, she she just didn't take no for an answer or she didn't accept the limitations that the world put in front of her. A lot of distributors, even when she got money to finish in in Europe and France, didn't want the movie because it was like it was too experimental and it was too out there. So she just kept hitting these walls. Uh, and she kept believing in what she was doing and that there would be people interested. And, you know, the, even part of the story covers how some of the reaction to the movie was extremely negative and hostile. And they rolled with that, too. That's something we have all experienced at various levels. We even experience it when we write a post on this site sometimes. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> and you have to roll with it. And that... And that's part of the process. Yeah, I always say that I've learned so much writing for No Film School. I've learned billions of things from our readers and from uh, vendors and about products and all this stuff. But one of the best things I've learned about writing for No Film School is how to ignore the haters. And because uh, <laughs> sometimes there's some people who just like are like, you got this one thing wrong. And I'm like, there were 20 facts in that article. And you're going to, okay, I did get that one thing wrong. I'm sorry. And they're like, you should die. So my skin has gotten much tougher writing publicly on the internet these last few years. Oh, yeah. It's definitely helped me, helped me, helped me develop a, a tougher inner core. This episode is brought to you by Shotlister, the only professional shot listing and scheduling app. Paper shot lists suck. When something inevitably goes wrong on set, you're left to scribble all over your perfect plan, guessing if you'll be able to make your day. But with Shotlister, you can schedule your film on a shot-by-shot and minute-by-minute basis. 
Then when things change on set, you can simply update the shooting schedule on the app and Shotlister automatically does the math for you so you know exactly how you're doing. And its crew sync feature means you can keep the whole crew up to date. Shotlister is designed by filmmakers for filmmakers and is available on macOS, iOS, and Android. Check it out at shotlister.com. As a special bonus for listening to the No Film School podcast, Shotlister is giving away 50 free downloads every month. Just email nofilmschool at shotlister.com for your free copy. All right, next up is tech news. Our tech news this week is something called Dish TC. First off, Dish TC is currently running a Kickstarter. We all know the dangers with Kickstarter. Um, I've had products take years to ship. I, I think I supported at least one Kickstarter where I never got the product. It is at a risk. Always, we say with Kickstarter, buyer beware. However, there's something specific about this Kickstarter that makes us nervous, and there is an interesting thing with this Kickstarter that we think is worth looking at. So, you want to sync your audio and your picture together. By far, the best way to do this is time code. Waveform takes a long time, and sometimes you can have sync issues if there's, uh, you know, the camera and the recorder are far from each other because light travels faster than sound. But time code requires either like an expensive time code slate or constantly rejamming. Dish TC has this interesting solution where they take the atomic clock time that goes out with the GPS signal from all the satellites around the world, and they pipe it. They have a little box that receives it, and they pipe it into your camera through audio linear time code, audio LTC. Now, it works. It doesn't work in every building. There's a little thing on their website where it's like, it doesn't work in missile silos. In my experience, it didn't work in my 1950s building. I had to take it outside to get signal. But once it has signal, it keeps that time very accurately and it rechecks when it can get signal. And so literally, you're plugging it into your camera, you're plugging it into your audio recorder, you're not having to jam every couple hours. It's great. If you're not working in a missile silo or a submarine, it should be really fantastic. It's so fantastic, in fact, that I wonder if like Blackmagic, Fuji, or Sony are going to buy them Uh, or Panasonic and start integrating this tech into cameras. Because frankly, it seems like eventually cameras will just have a GPS timecode clock in them for recording super accurate timecode. However, in the meantime, your camera likely doesn't have GPS timecode, and this is a great way to get it. The only hiccup you should know about is it doesn't really work perfectly with all software platforms. Media Composer worked great. Premiere doesn't really work at all yet. Um, And Blackmagic, it works for video really great, but you have to use a workaround for audio files. However... DishTC also has a software application for taking that audio timecode and turning it into video timecode. It's out in beta now, and they're going to work on developing it. They seem really serious about making this a, a viable solution, and I think for the cost, it's definitely something worth considering to save the hassle of constantly having to rejam timecode with a uh, timecode slate or other timecode solutions. So it's DishTC. The article's up on our... Uh, we have a hands-on review with it up on No Film School, and you should take a look. Our final item this week... Ask No Film School. And as you can hear from the paper, I printed it out. Ask No Film School this week. Zachary Lewis asks, I'm curious about others' takes on billing productions for mileage. I've been paid out mileage recently on a few recent productions, and I'm curious, is this something I should should personally bill for regardless of if it's offered? I ask because I'm on a job, and I'm required to drive a total of 150 miles round trip, and uh, I'd like mileage for that. Um... Ultimately, should I bring this up with the onset producer? Am I right to ask to be paid out for mileage? So first off, absolutely. Any expense you incur for the production should be covered. 
Uh, if you're driving more than 50 miles in LA, you should just be covered for mileage. Within 50 miles, especially in indie productions, you often don't get mileage. In fact, there was a location in LA called Sable Ranch, which I think is 49 miles from uh, City Hall in LA, and I never got mileage for shoots at Sable Ranch. And everybody shot Sable Ranch. The Asylum shot Sable Ranch. T2 shot Sable Ranch. Everybody shot Sa Sable Ranch. However, bigger productions always pay mileage. Anything over 50, they should be paying mileage, reimbursing you for gas, that kind of thing. But here's my secret trick. You shouldn't wait till you're on set to ask. Because once you're on set, they have the upper hand. You've already come out. You want to get paid. You don't want to rock the boat. You want to do the job. You want to keep working with them. But if you ask before set, always negotiate early for anything like that. Because let's say you say you're ACing. Eventually, you're going to have like a follow focus you're bringing and a wireless video system you're bringing because that's very common for ACs to own them now. You want to negotiate all those prices ahead of time. You never want to be in the position where, like, it's in your trunk, and they ask you if you can use it, and you're like, well, it's in my trunk, and they're like, well, how much, you know, and you're like, all right, it's in my trunk, but it's 50 day. They're going to be like, well, but it's in your trunk, and you already brought it. Can you just bring it out? So always get that negotiation done beforehand, and mileage is a very reasonable thing to ask for. It is very common, you know, in the initial hiring phone call, if somebody's like, oh, hey, can you AC? And you're like, oh, well, yeah, I can this is my rate, where's the location? And they're like, oh, and you're like, oh, that's pretty far away. Is travel covered? Very normal question. No one will ever be offended. You should totally coordinate that. Because honestly, if you're driving far enough and gas is expensive enough, that can be a major cut into your day rate and a super big bummer. So I, you know, getting gas coverage, getting mileage covered, totally normal thing on set, just negotiate early. So I've been a producer on set and I've been a producer, not on set. Like I've been all manners of producer on all manners of shoots. And even sometimes you'll have someone on your set who's going to be a runner. Maybe it's a PA, maybe it's someone in the art department, and they're just going to log a lot of hours driving. And it's not just because driving to and from set is outside of the zone. Everything could be in the zone, but they may end up in the car a lot. So you may end up having to reimburse for that. Um, but the best thing, just to emphasize what Charles, what you said, the best thing is if you have these conversations before you start the project, because not just because of leverage, but also because the person you're having this conversation with, the onset producer, may not be able to make this decision, even if they want to. You always want to bring these things up at the beginning, and the, the most important thing you can do is if you're coming to set is make sure that everything you're going to need is taken care of. If you start using your expendables, for example, that you brought, and then you find out later that you're not going to get any money for it. It's, it's easy to be angry at a production about that, but that's largely on you because uh, you have to make sure you negotiate these things in advance and they may not have had the money and they may assume that if you're doing that, well, that's just your decision. And while that doesn't seem entirely fair, uh, you know, they always need more money. Um, so they'll look for any opportunity, they being producers in production, to uh, maximize the dollar. So they don't certainly want to pay for gas reimbursements to everybody on a set, um, which another thing I would, I would mention is have that conversation one-on-one -on -one with the producer and state your case about why you might need it. Maybe it's, like I said, because you're traveling great distances in pre-production or in post-production and it's racking up. If you make that conversation a part of the production at large with other people, then production may make a blanket statement like, 
hey, we're not reimbursing anybody for, for traveling or gas or mileage on this. And that's just how it's going to be because suddenly everybody's asking. So try and figure out why it is you need it and be specific about what you need and have that conversation up front. That would be my advice. And understand that the person you're asking and talking to about it may likely have to get approval somewhere else or have that conversation. But yeah, if you're going over 50 miles, I think it's safe to say that you should be reimbursed. All right, everybody, that has been the No Film School podcast this week. This has been Charles Hayne. I'm at Charles Hayne on Twitter. Uh, George is not with me at the moment because I had to record this separately, but you can always, uh, George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School, you can follow all our great articles at nofilmschool.com. You should subscribe to this podcast for more headlines and tech news and Ask No Film School and all that good stuff. If you're a super big tech nerd, I also have a separate tech news podcast called The Week in Film Tech. You can look it up, weekinfilmtech.com. You can subscribe to that for all the film tech news. So it's like it's like the tech news we do here, but more of it and in more detail, keeping you up to date on all of the stuff happening in film tech. So uh, you should subscribe to the No Film School email uh, to get updated stuff on all of these articles and when new podcasts come out and follow us on No Film School. And you can always ask questions at, I believe it's ask at No Film School or on Twitter or the No Film School boards if you want your question answered for Ask No Film School. Looking forward to seeing you guys in another week. This has been Charles Haynes.